All right, I actually want to jump in there just because, again, this is a, a, a topic that's kind of near and dear to my heart because uh, this is something I, I struggle with, and Scott knows that. So there's two basically <laughs> basic reasons why I think campaigns fall apart for me. First is the group falls apart, and that is just something that, you know, struggle with playing in college or even since then where, you know, one person misses one week and then the next week another person misses, so we don't play, we cancel, we do a board game night instead, and now it's been a month since we played and people have forgotten what their characters were doing, and basically the excitement uh, from the player side is kind of lost because it just it just didn't it didn't happen close together. Uh, kind of like what happened to Lost, the TV show, when they started every three weeks you would miss two episodes and they would people kind of couldn't keep up with the story and they're like, ah, screw this. But from the DM side, the number one reason why a campaign doesn't work for me is when I create the idea, when I have that initial conception of this is what I want to have happen. I have like a it's like a singular perfect thing. In my mind, I know that it's going to be the greatest campaign that I've ever run, and my characters are going to cry at the end. It's just going to be amazing. And then the first session happens, and it doesn't exactly go to plan. And then the second session happens, and it's completely fucking wrong. And it kind of like destroys my confidence that I'm going to be able to continue it and get to the point that I want to, to get to. So basically... I'm rambling here, but when the when the game hits the road and it is no longer that perfect idea that I had, then I kind of die a little inside and it makes me not want to complete it because now I have this other idea that's perfect because it hasn't actually uh, happened yet. So, Jim, I saw you jumping at the bit there. What do you have for that? I know Lucas wants to go as well. Yeah, uh, Lucas, if you want to go first, go right ahead. No, no go ahead. As as far as percentage, and now I'm embarrassed to say the number, I'm probably about 75% of mine are completed. Um, I do have a fairly high completion ratio, and it's and I'm going to put an asterisk beside that because I because of the nature of the storytelling that I do, uh, nothing is ever complete. I never end a story where everything is tied up. I absolutely refuse to do it. Um, again, to to reference the the L5R one shot that we did with Michael and Caleb, you know that was designed to be a one shot and not go anything more. It just happened to end that Michael's character, his sister, was getting married all off to the big bad who lived through the thing, and that's just how it ended. And to me, there's never a true, true ending, but what I, I do to get a high success ratio is, and it was mentioned earlier, is there is an end point, and there is an end point that is thought about from the beginning. Uh, I, I used to be, and still to a degree, am involved with a group called the GM Academy on Roll20. Excellent group of people uh, giving uh, DM advice uh, and player advice to, to people on Roll20. And one of the common questions I have people ask, I, things aren't going right, campaigns aren't going right, yada, yada, yada. And my first question always to them is, how long is your campaign? And very few people actually have an answer to that. Because I start a campaign, and it's going to be the greatest thing in, in the world, and it's going to last forever, and we're just going to game forever. Uh, where I go into it with, I mean, some of my campaigns are, are you know, four-play sessions. Some of them are three years long. You know, whatever the expectation, but as, as and I think it was Chris was saying it, it's the, the expectation to put of what are we going to play, how long are we going to play, and what are we going to work towards. The one other thing I want to add just really quickly that helps with longer-form games is you need a sense of finale. You need a sense of accomplishment in little arcs. My personal rule of thumb that I use is 15 to 20 hours. When I start looking at how long it takes to read a novel, how long a season of television is, how long story arcs are in the other form of media we consume, movies being kind of their own little exception, um, I start to see a pattern. And most of those are 12 to 15. I think things take a little bit longer to play out at a tabletop. So my rule of thumb is I plan a story arc that is 15 to 20 hours that gives a sense of conclusion. Uh, I was actually thinking about, someone had mentioned Mario earlier in the panel. I don't even remember what the context was. Um, but I'm going... Who would enjoy Mario if it was 32 levels and then you fought Bowser? No, we, we have a world with three or four levels and then we beat Bowser or one of his kids. And then a world with three or four levels and we beat Bowser or one of his kids. This gives a sense of accomplishment as, as opposed to forever moving forward. So those would be my, my couple pieces of advice. All right, Lucas, what do you have there? 
Yeah, so the first thing I think I'll just echo again what, what Jim said. You have to define what is a campaign before you can define how successful it is. So we, we define a campaign as level 20. We play Dungeons & Dragons almost all the time, so that's everything that happens from level 1 to level 20 is what we call a campaign. How many of those have we finished? Less than we'd like. Lots of things, lots of things knock them over. Um, we, have tar we have TPKs with some frequency, sometimes caused by me, sometimes caused by them, sometimes because they, they fight each other, you never know. Um, various, in, in some of them, I get bored, they get bored, you, you know. Um, when, you, when you set out to play for 20 levels of D&D, you're going to be at it for a while. So, you know, sometimes they're just not as fun as you think they were going to be, so we get bored. Um, we don't have the problem with the group falling apart. Uh, you know, Michael, I, I've, I've been running with the same team of players um, for the better part of 20 years. We meet weekly. We play whether or not you show up. Um, we do use uh, online tools. We post recaps so you can read about what happened in the past um, so to keep people up with it, and that, that, and that helps. Um, but, I mean, the, a lot of things knock them over, um, but, but we've, we've finished quite a few. Um, when we switch editions, we often abandon a campaign. We just switch back from 5e to Pathfinder, so we, we quit our 5e campaign after about level 10. So, I actually do want to jump in there for one quick thing. Uh, when we were talking about setting expectations earlier, that is one of the things that I would suggest that you set at that session zero is what happens if a player misses. Is that grounds for we just don't play unless everyone shows up? Does your character fade to the background and, and they're there, but they're not really there? Or does another player play that PC for you? So that's definitely something that you would want to have a, de a decision on before it comes up so that no one feels hurt if they're like, well, I, you got my character killed, and they assumed that you know, they would just fade to the background type of a thing. All right, um, I think several people wanted to jump in there as well. I know Caleb did, but I don't remember if anyone else. So I'll go to you, and then if you wanted to jump in, let me know again. Okay, yeah, so like I cut in at the very beginning of this whole thing, I no matter how we define a campaign, I will not uh, hesitate to say I've never run one to completion simply because shit happens. Um, although the uh, the campaign that I am running at home right now for Dave and Stacy and my wife who are listening, that will end, and it will end very soon, and it will be horrible. Um, I, I, think, I think I might have been channeling Michael a little bit when I prepared how this one's going to end. Um, but no, there is not a time-traveling tower with a key that opens it that's also a dagger. Um, everyone has brought up really, really good points about how things end and setting expectations and really determining the length of a campaign and your game and what you're delivering. Uh, something Jim touched on, and I just kind of wanted to go back to for a moment... One of the reasons that campaigns end is because I think people don't know how to end a story anymore. Um, so many people have just said, hey, look at TVs, look at movies, look at the arc of a, a piece of media and use that as your foundation. That's perfect advice. That's the best way to figure out how to do this because it also teaches you how to end the damn story. Um, so many people on forums and the public opinion, so many people share this, I want a sandbox world. I want a, a world where I can do anything. I want this, this, and this. These are the people that are driving this misconception of needing a game that goes on forever and there's just constant options of things happening. Tell a story. Finish the arc. Start, start an adventure and finish it. But if you pick up those same characters and keep going in the world, that's awesome. But you can still tell a story. You can still start an event and deliver a resolution. So I think the real reason that some campaigns fall apart is because at some point the GM says, I have no clue what to do. I have all these threads. I don't know how to tie them together. I need a break. I need a day. Let's skip next week so I can figure out what the hell's going on. And then it never comes back. So I think on top of everything we've been talking about, a really good piece of advice is learn how to deliver resolution. 
I know Lucas wanted to uh, counterpoint there. Lucas, you have 30 seconds to respond. All I want to say is uh, it's it's entirely possible to both tell a story and provide a sandbox where your players can ping pong all over the place. You have oh, yeah, you got to be loose about it, but but you can totally have a sandbox and a story together. Oh yeah, I, I I'm not saying that you can't at all, but I think you have to you have to have in your head how you want to go about that, and I don't think that everybody knows how to handle that. I don't. I can't do it. I'm not criticizing anyone because I can't do it. <laughs> let, let, let me let me let me jump in actually on that real quick because I think Lu Lucas makes a, a good point and just to illuminate more of what what Caleb just said on that of of you're you're right. Um, you know, obviously you you most certainly can do do story in sandbox, and I think a lot of what the issue is. Um, for for some people is that the style of you know let's play off of what our players bring to the table you know which again as we talked about is a completely legitimate style and it works very well for in the moment things but if you don't have what Lucas mentioned earlier of and, and I'm guessing by your comment you regularly do sandbox style games I'm guessing um, especially with 11 players Whew, I'm, I'm envious of being able to run 11 players good lord uh, yeah, I, let me I, jump I, in there with a DM tip don't run for 11 players <laughs> <laughs> unless, unless you are Lucas unless you're Lucas I got a second group that's only like five so there's where I get my small group Lucas there's is a family. goddamn superstar that's what yeah, we're taking away from this GM summit the uh, but but what happens is if you are just going off what your players give you, and you don't have an ultimate direction, and you never start tying these things together for a progression, eventually at some point you have a mess of plot threads with no plot progression. That's where a lot of issues can come up with that. I think the resolution to that is exactly what Lucas said earlier. If I have a destination, if I have a direction that I'm going, then when I'm playing with my players and doing the improv style and building these fun little scenes, I also can see, okay, that scene needs to work this direction to get story to come to resolution. And if you never look at it that way, you end up with a whole bunch of partial plot threads. You know, and I spend as much time in my adventure prep thinking back on all of the little plot things that popped up in the last session and how I'm going to tie them into where we're going as I do actually creating new content for the game. I mean, I spend an awful lot of time on their plot points that have popped up and, and plugging them in to the story that I've already, that I've already got. So we have another question uh, from Quinn that I think kind of parallels what we're talking about already. So I'm just going to kind of throw it out so that we can touch on it at the same time. And Quinn was basically asking, um, in a longer-running campaign, how do you keep things fresh while still running relatively on track with the story? Like, how do you know when it's time to shake things up? And I think what we've sort of touched on here, is it's a lot like a TV show, again, I'll reference Lost again, that you can have a great first episode where you set up these amazing characters that's just like, oh, wow, I want to know everything about this character. But then if you just do all middle, then it just starts to keep spreading out, and there's never any true excitement. It just keeps spreading out in all these different directions. And I think Jim hit it on the head when he talked about you need to have these sort of cresting waves where the tension rises, and then you have some sort of resolution. You, you beat the mini-boss. You beat the sub-boss. You, you, you uncover one secret and then it builds up once again, maybe hopefully higher than the first time, and then it crests again over and over again. And if you don't have those uh, moderate crests in the middle, then it does start to just kind of seem boring, for lack of a better term. Yeah, you're on the right track. You're working towards the ultimate resolution, but it starts to get boring on the way. So, Devin, what did you have there? Uh, I had, I was, when I saw this question, I was really excited for it because it lets me bring up something that I learned uh, a couple years back when I was reading a, uh, a book on writing, uh, and I think it's called Make a Scene. Jordan Rosenfeld, maybe, is the author. But the, uh, the thing that I really took away from that book was that in every single scene, the players need to learn something new. Like, the scene has no business being in the narrative if they don't learn something new. And it doesn't have to be something major. It doesn't have to be a major clue to the mystery. It can be that, oh, they learned that the the villain likes the color blue. Or that the villain's mother was a, um, 
a very important person, and why did he fall so far from the tree? Uh, you know, it's just there needs to be something new in every scene because then that'll keep the players engaged in the game. It'll keep their minds clicking and putting all the puzzle pieces together to kind of figure out what this story is and what it means to them and their characters. So along those lines, I do not use random encounters. Like, I just have never, ever been a fan of those. Anybody have a theory or a point on that they'd like to counter? I think you're right. Random encounters are horrible. <laughs> well, they, they got a place. They got a place. You just got to be careful with them. Okay, let, yeah. me, let me rephrase. Random encounters are horrible. Semi-random encounters are good. So you're mm. traveling through the woods and the wilderness, and you have it up, you know, you have their downtime, you know, the players are looking at you, waiting for something to happen. Have a semi-random encounter that, you know, you can roll on a table if you want to, but make sure there's a point to the encounter. You don't have to know what the encounter is, but you know you could say, okay, this random encounter is going to foreshadow um, the, the thieves that are traveling the roadways. So, you know, it could be a random encounter of um, a person falls, you know, stumbles into their camp, and they're like, okay, who's this person? Why are you here? And, you know, they explain that that the the thieves are on the on the roadway, stealing everyone's money, killing people who don't pay. It could be the thieves stumble upon you directly, and there's a combat encounter. You know, it could be wild animals are um, attacking you in your camp because the thieves are not only on the roadway, but they have a, a, a big camp nearby, and they're killing all of the you know all the the prey animals. They're going hunting, taking the deer, so. The wolves are hungry and they need to eat, so what do they do? They find adventurers that are about to go to bed, and they attack. So semi-random encounters are good if there's a reason for them, but purely random encounters just to give your players XP, I am not a fan of. Oh, the, you are so wrong. The, <laughs> I, I was, I was going to snap... Lucas, I'll, I'll let you be the voice of reason here. I, I, you and I are on the same side of this, but I think you're going to say it a lot better than me. Alright, so... That there is a point to purely random... There's several points to purely random encounters. Some of the ways that I use them, first of all, there's areas of... We, we play in a persistent world. The things that we have done over the last two decades have affected the world that we play in, and they continue to affect it. But the world itself is also what we think of as a, a living thing. Uh, so you can walk down the street of a town, and you don't have to worry about goblins jumping out and killing you but you can't necessarily walk down the street of a goblin-infested forest and not have to worry about goblins. So random encounters provide a way to create uh, an area and, and bring that area in some ways to life. Now, I don't use a ton of them, but, but if, if, I want, if we've spent the last 10 years talking about how dangerous the, uh, the forest over here is, and then they stroll through it and there's, there's just the four or five different encounters that, that are there for the, the actual adventure, it doesn't feel that dangerous. It kind of feels like where they came from. Um, so, so I use. I'd, I'd like to re refute that, if I may. Yeah. That I, I think we're talking about the same thing because um, you've been building up the tension of this forest is dangerous. You know, there's a lot of goblins in it. You know, don't go there. You're gonna die. So the encounters with goblins aren't random. They're there to reinforce what the here what the players have already learned. Fair, but but they are there. I, I when and maybe we define random encounter. I, I create planned encounters that have five goblins, and they're in this place, and there's these traps, and this and that, and then I, I will create a table, and on that table will be numbers from one to a hundred, and you might hit a goblin, or you might hit a, a merchant, or you might hit a, an ogre, who knows what you might hit, you might hit something you should run away from. That's random. Its only function in that instance is to present that this world is alive and it's dangerous. I've also used them um, to add a different level of tension. When my players, when there's a time constraint, um, or they have, uh, say they have some sort of disease and they can't fix it themselves, but if they get back home, they can fix it. Um, adding these encounters that, that don't, they don't really mean anything. They're just there to create this other form of tension. Um, I've been very successful with, uh, with diseases and, and making people afraid of this disease that they picked up because they got to get back to town in order to, uh, in order to get cured, but they can't because they're, you know, they're in a dangerous place and it's just hard to get there. Um, so, I mean, I use them for a lot of, I, I, I don't make heavy use of random encounters because 
when you get down to it, you're talking about an hour or two of gameplay that is somewhat throwaway. So you got to be careful with that. But but I absolutely think they have their place in in the game. Yeah, and so I I think your definition of random encounter is my definition of semi-random encounter because the encounter is reinforcing something in the game world. That's fair. Because back in you know basic D and D and AD and D, you were literally roll. Uh, for a random encounter, every room you come into, just so the players could get XP and you know get better. But having, yeah. Even though, okay. even though in that, ex- I'm, I'm gonna shut up now because I'm just saying the same thing over and over. Well, no, I, I, I think you guys, you're agreeing in a very unique way, um, because in to Lucas's point, the random encounters do serve a point to the story. They are adding tension. They are removing resources that the characters might need later, and it's reinforcing that the world is dangerous. So, again, I think the randomness that Lucas is talking about is that he rolls to sometimes determine what exactly it is that they're facing, but the encounter itself isn't truly random because it serves a purpose. And to Christopher's point, going back to, again, my days in AD&D, where you would just roll 1d6 and on a 1 they fought something in the hallway, and it was just there to have more combat or to uh, provide them with a chance to get XP, and it didn't serve any point to the story unless you gave it a point to the story. But, but isn't that true of everything we do? Even in those old modules, those, those, those monsters that you encountered in the hallways served the point of making this dungeon be more than just walk into a room, kill everybody there, walk over to this room, kill everybody over there, walk over to this room and kill everybody there. They're what brought that dungeon to life and said, hey, look, somebody's going from their guard post to the shitter, and from the shitter to the kitchen. No, and, and I agree with you there as well. I think and what I'm thinking of is that if I was doing that type of a dungeon crawl, I wouldn't make that random. I would go, okay, looking at my map, I know that there's an ogre that, that patrols this area. Oh, they fought the goblins. He probably heard that. Let me roll. Yes, he did. He comes and inspects it. So it's still not random. It's part of the living world that's going on. Um, so yeah, I think I think we're trying to de- define what is is, as Bill Clinton would have said back in the 80s. Um, so let's uh, 90s. Let's, oh, sorry, 90s. Whatever. I'm old. All <laughs> right. So let's let's get back to the original question uh, from Quinn, which is if things are going along but they seem to be stagnating, when do you know it's time to to mix it up? How do you mix it up? Any any thoughts on that? Provide closure. Because if um, things are stagnating, to me, that means that there's a lot of uh, different plot threads out there, and so they're not quite sure what to go after because of that analysis paralysis. So give them a, a hook right away, you know, ninjas bust in the room and start shooting or type thing, and then um, have that the next adventure bring closure to one of those plot threads so then, you know, it... it it releases the tension that's been there. Um, yeah. I, I think if we're talking about how to mix things up, you want to go back to how you're telling the story. I mean, let's let's go back to the idea of um, of looking at a season of television. Look for those moments where the story gets mixed up a little bit. The main story gets moved to the back burner while a side arc comes to the forefront. Those types of methods of how that pacing occurs is a way to keep the story a little bit fresh. Um, and also try to think about it from a player standpoint. When things get really repetitive, that's when things get boring. It, it On a very small scale, think of an encounter. If you're doing an encounter and you're doing really nothing but rolling and attacking, rolling and attacking, that's get, that gets boring after a little bit. If you're in a dungeon, and it's noth- and the room you're in is nothing but reflex save, reflex save, reflex save, reflex save, reflex save, to jump over a pit or not fall off a pillar, that gets really boring. So on a small level, think of an encounter. How do you make an encounter not get stagnant? What monsters are you bringing in? How are you mixing things up? How are you getting different input from the players? And then expand that to to the larger scale of the game session and the entire campaign. 
why is this boring? Is it because we're just talking to NPC after NPC? Is it just encounter after encounter and all we're doing is fighting goblins to try to get to the Goblin King? Interject something new and figure out that right pacing of when to interject it, and that'll help keep things fresh. As you were kind of talking about the the idea of a TV show, I really like that idea of maybe having the players play other characters for one session. Uh, they're maybe playing alternate characters, background characters, or maybe even the villains, that you get some insight into what you're facing because you get to play the, the bad guys and you get to see what their plan is, uh, just like in like you might see that in a TV show, where now you're going to go raid the village that, that your players were going to. So you've taken... Um, that idea that it's, you know we just we're just traveling from here to there, and now that you have that kind of uh, anticipation that your players now know when they get to the village, it's going to be all effed up because we effed it up. I think uh, taking the TV show comparison, uh, if you aren't having like A and B plots, that might be something to throw into your game because the B plot will kind of provide a little bit of relief, a little bit of rest from the intensity of the A-plot, and maybe they'll learn some stuff about the A-plot in the B-plot while doing something a little more lighthearted, maybe something that's not as serious. Yeah, let me let me jump in with that, because um, I think there's been a lot of a lot of good advice. I pretty much agree with every everything that's said out here, which is bad because I want to disagree with people, but I, I, I guess you all have too good of advice. Um, what, one of the things, um, especially that can really make an issue with a long running game and it's starting to feel dull, is what everyone else said, and that is the lack of variety. Now, we look at variety in an aspect of, a lot of times from a game aspect of, are we doing combat? Are we doing role play? Are we doing skill challenges? These is what, this is what we're looking at for variety, but one of the other very important aspects of variety is tone, and that is the tone of the game that you are playing. I had to, this is something I had to fix within my own style, because if, if you all haven't figured it out, I like heavy, serious role play. That's, that's my bread and butter. That's what I enjoy. It's what I come to the table for. You can't run a three-year campaign where every single week people are going to want to try and break down and cry on you. They will not keep coming to the table. It's too emotionally draining, and it's too similar. It will have a less and less effect. So one of the things that I do in long-running campaigns is I will do my, my 15 to 20-hour story arc. And then, because it's me, you don't have to pick up a complete different game. You could do a little one-off side quest, but because of the way I run things, I actually pick up a completely different game with the same group, and we run something silly and stupid and just over-the-top ridiculous, and that way we are still having a complete different experience at the game table from what I have been running, and that gets that variety accomplished. Now, again, it doesn't have to be as dramatic as what I said. I mean, if you are running your standard fantasy kill monsters every single time you need to give a different tone maybe if you're doing silly every time you need to have a serious episode one with a little more emotional impact to give that stability whatever you can do to put some of that variety in there will really help extend the life of the campaign on top of what everyone else already said alright so Quinn I, I hope we did your question justice uh, we've only got a couple viewers at the moment right now, but if you have any questions, please send them in. That, that's all that we had in the queue. Uh, but I had uh, one I wanted to talk about, and then Christopher gave me an idea as well that we'll get to. So my idea, or my question, this is something that I struggle with as well. I, within our own podcast, I'm known that I don't do a lot of combat, unless I do. Uh, so sometimes <laughs> I will... Liar! I will Liar. play a combat specifically because I feel like we haven't had one for a while. I was like, oh, this will be fun. We'll put a combat in here. And then invariably, the characters want to talk to the monsters or they want to talk to the bandits, and I haven't prepared for that because this was supposed to be a haven't had a combat in a while. So this actually happened just this week where I threw a, a well, supposed to be a really quick combat just to you know kind of get things excited, and then they wanted to talk to the bandit. And I think this is something that new, D, new GMs struggle with a lot too, is like, well, you don't want to give up the whole plot, and then you end up with a whole torture scene. So... So I guess my question is, is when you throw something at the players that they're supposed to kill and they want to talk to it, how do you, without just, again, taking away their agency and having the thing fight into the death, even though that doesn't make sense, or you just break the rules to let it run away so that you don't have to deal with that, do you have any go-to techniques that you use for handling that in a good way? 
Take yeah, five. Take take five. Okay. So you just mean like call a timeout and think about what the bandit would say before you get into the story? Yeah, I don't think there's any problem in saying, hey guys, this isn't I didn't prepare for this. So give me a few minutes to figure out what's gonna happen. I do that quite frequently. Smoke them if you got them. So don't yeah. smoke because it's bad for you. Or okay. the whole, hey, you know, let's take a bathroom break. Or, you know, it's a great time for food break. If, if you don't want to be out and out, say, hey, I don't have anything planned. Give me a sec. You can be like, hey, let's take a break. Let, let me come at it from a slightly different angle. Um, it's... It, it, what you described, Michael, to a, a degree, I believe, is is a symptom of something that naturally occurs, and it's something that a lot of people don't consider, and that is everything you do at a game table with a group of people, you are setting precedent for interaction. And if every time they are encountering the thing in the woods, they fight it and kill it, you have set the precedent that we fight and kill the thing. To, to give a couple examples of, of how this normally comes up and causes issues is you have the, our typical dungeon delve, and they go through a door, and the spring trap springs on them and hits them. And now from this point forward, they check every single damn door in the world before they walk through it, including the shopkeeper, and the GM gets mad. Why are you taking so much time? Well, you, you set the precedent. You sprung a trap on them. Now we have to check doors. Uh, the same thing also comes up with uh, a lot of GMs who want to do the, the, the super powerful monster or the badass that you're not supposed to fight because he's so terrifying. Well, you, you spent four or five play sessions setting up the precedent that Everything I fight, I can kill and overcome, and now suddenly you tell me no. You've set the precedent that combat should happen, and I think that is the symptom. The way to alleviate that is you have to present the situation differently to them, differently enough so that it registers differently within their mind. What you describe of they're coming and they're going to, you know, whatever, come across the goblins that they're not supposed to kill. Well, if they killed the other three sets of goblins that they came across on the trail, they're damn sure going to kill the fourth set of goblins that they come across the trail because you've taught them that. But the goblins that are trading in the merchant stop, um, you know, down in the basement, haggling back and forth, well, suddenly this is a complete different encounter with goblins. This isn't goblins in the wood at a campsite that I've killed a dozen times before. What's going on here? What information do they have? And, and if you present the situation in a complete different way than they're used to coming across it, it removes that precedent of interaction. So, so quite a few people there indicated they have something to say, but uh, Lucas was the most um, exuberant, <laughs> so I'll go to you first, uh, Lucas. You I, I'm going to agree and disagree with Jim there. So I, I think we do train our players, but what I endeavor to teach my players is that they're in a world that it makes logical sense. So I don't have to present an encounter with a goblin different than the last encounter with the goblin because they know that if they try to talk to that goblin, then what, what I try to learn or what I try to come prepared with is what is that goblin's goals? What is it there for? If I know why it's there, I know what it's attempting to do there, then logic will allow me to say, so somebody comes in carrying swords, what is it going to do when they try to talk to it? If the goblin is there and it's just a mad, crazy thing, it'll attack them. But if, it, if, it's, if it's not, it will talk to them. Um, I've had entire game, I, I've written entire dungeons uh, where the players, instead of fighting it, they just talk to everything and talk their way right through the whole thing. Um, I deal with it by letting them do it. Uh, but, but I think that what, what I wanted, what I try to, to teach my players is that they're in a world that, sh that is going to react the way the world would react if we lived in a place where there was magic and goblins and dragons and zombies. That's also why random encounters make perfect sense, because the world just exists and shit happens. Exactly. <laughs> All right, Devin or Christopher, do you have anything else to add to that? Uh, no, not really. Um, they're they're talking about preventing. Uh, it kind of from happening, uh, but I really liked. Um, I think it was you, Lucas, who mentioned about the goals of the NPC. If if someone shows up uh, and you want them to be interesting, give them a goal because then 
once you know the goal, you know what they're going to do in any given situation to resolve that goal. So if you have a guy who wants to rob them, and they say, hey, no, no, we want to talk. If you know that he wants to rob them, then you can just say, okay, he'll talk. Give me all your money. Yeah, I think that goes back really as, a, as the best possible answer. Michael, you originally asked, what do I do when it doesn't go the way I think it is? I, I think the answer is because maybe you didn't think it out all the way. Even though I just said random encounters should exist, you also need to have uh, a foundation of, of that randomness. If you throw in a combat just to have a combat, great, have a combat. Stumble across the, the goblin. There's, there's a bear. Who cares? There's combat. But you still need to know not why it exists, but why the thing is fighting. And I want to say we had this conversation on an earlier Academy episode with the Angry DM when he was talking about motivation and understanding why NPCs think the way they do and do what they do. And I think that answers the entire question. Um, and it's... Um, I totally just lost my train of thought. Um, Choo-choo. Yep. <laughs> so, so just know... I mean, know what the bandit's doing. If he's there to rob them and they say, hey, let's talk it out, yeah, he's going to talk about robbing them. Maybe with the right checks, he talks about why he wants to rob his his family is poor and sick, or he's just a a bad guy. I mean, whatever the reason is, that's what the reason is. Um, but before everyone had this great conversation about all of it, my original response was going to be, well, it. it when something comes up that's unexpected like that, that's always a really good exercise to make yourself as a GM work a little bit harder. Because I think a lot of times we do get set in our ways and we kind of rely on these crutches a lot of times to take a little bit of a break. But sometimes when a, a weird situation pops up, we have to use that as a moment to really, um, really work out and really figure things out on the fly, which can be very important. And sometimes... Uh, sometimes the players will answer their own questions. I think Christopher said this a while ago. He Sometimes we don't plan things to be connected as GMs, but players see patterns that may or may not be there. Just steal it from them. Who cares? They don't know. If they come up with a great response for why the bandit is attacking them, just use it. That's, that's my best advice. Agreed. Silence is one of the best and most underutilized GM tools. Just uh, sit back and listen. And uh, again, what, there's, what's that saying? That uh, it's better to keep your mouth shut and be thought of fool than to open it and remove all doubt. So like, if, God, if, that's someone, your motto. if someone says, um, oh my God, this guy is connected to this guy. It all makes sense. And you're like, oh no, no, that's not what I meant. Shut up. <laughs> it is what you meant. <laughs> shut up. <laughs> Cool. Especially right. if it's really, really dramatic. If there's oh. a crazy dramatic moment and you just don't respond, even for a couple beats, it, it, it intensifies the mood, first off. It, it helps get players invested in that moment organically, plus it, give, it lets them fill the blank with something. And it's usually better than what you came up with. Oh, yeah, just about all the time. All right, well, we're getting close to kind of coming on two hours, which is kind of what I was thinking this would be. So uh, we don't have to wrap it up right then, but I, I want to kind of move in that direction. We do still have some viewers listening and watching, so if you have any questions that you want us to cover, please throw them in. Uh, until that happens, I have another prompt. This came from Christopher. So this is from a while ago, but we want to circle back around. So from the GM perspective, where do like, – when you're starting to write your your adventure or your campaign, sort of like where do you start and do you have any tips or techniques in, in the process of writing it down? Note cards, Evernote, um, Maps, Google, whatever. Uh, obviously, we could go on this topic probably for years, keep it to somewhat of a minimum. So I'll just go left to right on this one. So Caleb, when you're starting your, a new adventure, new campaign, how do you, what is the process by which you do that? Oof. Um... It's a lot of just 
brainstorming while I'm doing other stuff. A lot of times I am simply wrestling over ideas and having an, a discussion with my internal monologue while I'm driving to work, in the shower, doing dishes. I'm just throwing out, okay, if, if this happens, this might happen. Oh, what about this? This could be a good idea. Uh, I know this player wants to have this type of person, so I should probably give them something like this. The majority of my campaign planning is just random stream of consciousness brainstorming. And usually, somewhere in this jumble of thoughts, I will suddenly have an idea that makes sense. Um, if I'm lucky, I write it down. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I have lots of scraps of paper everywhere. I'll probably throw it into notes on my phone or somewhere in the Google Docs. I always have these grand ideas of making like mental maps and using one notebook for each campaign and, and all this, but it always falls apart. Um, Mostly because if I start writing notes, my OCD kicks in a little bit, and then I have to write the notes in the same book with the same pen on the same paper, and if something changes, then I lose my freaking mind, and I have to rewrite everything. Hey, there's a great look behind the curtain, guys. I'm fucking insane. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's all about just kind of throwing these random ideas together for me. All right, excellent. Christopher, anything that you do differently than that? Um, for me, my first step is, especially if it's um, a specific game with a specific theme, that I will read the GM section, and because hopefully the designers will tell you this is the theme of the game, this is what uh, you should be playing for, and they'll give you a little bit of advice. So I'll read through that, and like a sentence or a phrase or even a picture will jump out at me, and I'll be like, okay, this is what the campaign is about. And then from there, I'll be like, okay, so this is what the campaign's about. What do I want my end game to be? And from there, you know, figure out how do I get there. Like, I have a specific goal in mind. You know, I have a, a campaign where, you know, a little bit of insight. In my current game, Shadow of the Demon Lord, I read this section where it said that um, the gates to, to hell have closed, souls cannot leave the body, which means that they go back into the, into the bodies and they're revived as zombies. Great. So I grabbed onto that. I'm like, okay. So from here, I want to have zombies be the, the main bad guy, but where are the zombies coming from? Well, the name of the game is Shadow of the Demon Lord, so let's throw a demon in there. So the end game is the players beat the demon. How do we get there? I don't know. I've got like three or four ideas of like adventure arcs, and um, as Caleb said, write it down, jot down ideas. I don't use physical paper. Um, I'm pretty much at a computer, or at, I either have my computer, or my iPad, or my phone with me at all times, so I just open up a, a note, notebook page and just jot down ideas. You know, if I'm driving in the car, hey, Google... Uh, take a note and dictate or something like that or if you have a, a recording app on your phone you know, record just talk to yourself because sometimes vocalizing things and I'm lucky enough that I married a writer so whenever I'm, I'm at a loss as to what to do I go to her I'm like okay here's what I'm trying to do here's my idea tell me where it sucks so getting input from someone else or when she's not a, around, you know, just, you know, the other day I was like, I jumped on the, the network and was like, hey guys, I'm stuck, what do I do? And all y'all gave me some great ideas, so know some other GMs, have a, a, a support group, and just bounce ideas back and forth. Yeah, I think that one's very important if you have that resource. And with the internet today, it's almost, you almost have to not try uh, to go somewhere to get advice. It, the, the problem is, is if you throw it out to too wide of an audience, you're going to get so many opinions that they're all contradictory. Uh, it's best to have a smaller group of people that you trust, you know, like a network of other shows and uh, 
ap- applications for role-playing games. You know, just just throwing that out there. All right, so Devin, what about you? What, how do you start and, and sort of facilitate the creation of your games and campaigns? Uh, at the very beginning, what I'll do is I will come up with a hook, something that is going to snag the the PCs and make them want to go in the direction of my story that will be developed. And then once I've got the hook, I'm like, okay, so why is this happening? I come up with uh, the reason uh, the bad guys who are doing that get an idea of, uh, of who works with the bad guys, you know, just so I know who the PCs are going to be up against. And then after I do that, I'm like, okay, so I've got the basic ideas. Uh, what is my first session going to be like? And then I'll brainstorm and think about a bunch of different scenes that I think should pop up in that first session. Uh, and sometimes it'll be like the end scene that I think of before I get to the very beginning scene, but they are hardly ever thought of in sequential order. So I'll just think up a bunch of list of scenes, write them down on paper, or record them on, as a voice note to transcribe into my notes later, or whatever. And then I'll uh, take a look at those scenes and order them in the uh, order that I think they should happen, and then I'll make all the bad guys and stuff for those scenes, and that's how I got my modular scenes going, so that um, I have an idea of how I think they're going to happen, but the players might have a different idea, and I can throw them all in the mix and still have them get all the necessary information to move on. All right, very cool. All right, Jim, anything uh, different that you want to add? Uh, I'm I'm such a bad person to answer this question because I I have very specific processes and I have multiple of them and they are like way too complicated to explain here. Actually, I talk about one of my <laughs> on on the GM Academy again. That reference earlier, I did some videos for them and one of them was I have in eight steps to building a plot for tabletop. And my most condensed possible version, I think I got into about an hour and ten minutes of just me straight talking to explain it. So it, it, it's not an easy thing. The, the, the reality is I have a very structured approach to how I am going to design a campaign. As I've said earlier, I, I plan out details. The most basic of it is I lay out the three-act structure, if I'm doing a, a, a three-act story, uh, in front of me. And I go, what information needs to be given at each scene and what emotion am I trying to elicit at each scene? And I lay these two things over top of each other. Of They need to discover that it's actually a cult that is going to be summoning Cthulhu, and they need to feel accomplished. Well, that scene is them killing cult members. You know, They need to discover that the documents were in fact forged, and that this is the point in the story where they need to feel defeat. Okay, well, they were tricked into this situation, discovered this information, but it's because of other forged documents that misled them in some way. And I look for the connection between those two as I lay out the story. That would probably be the the most basic way to explain what I do because, again, I'm... When it comes to story and laying out plot, I am incredibly obsessive. I am far more than most any other human being you'll ever meet, and I don't recommend these tactics, but it's just it's what I do. Well, if it works for you, it could potentially work for someone else, uh, though I would think of that as more of like an advanced technique. Uh, so if someone who's just yeah. starting in uh, to GMDM... Do not listen to me. Maybe, maybe not. <laughs> All right, Luke, Never listen to GM in general. Just don't listen to Jim in general. I thought we were friends. I'm undercutting this with the emotion of betrayal. Yeah, you just learned something, and you felt an emotion. Boom! (laughs) I turned that around, son. I'm a fast learner. Boom, shakalaka. (laughs) All right, so um, I always start at the end. I think I mentioned that earlier. Uh, We play... We typically play in a persistent world, so... Uh, my, the very first thing I do is look at the last game that we played, the one we just finished, whether we finished it because we got to the end of the, the two-year story arc or the one-year game or whether we finished it because they all died. Uh, and I look to see if there's something that we want to bring forward into the next one. But I plan my end. My end is always at least a year out, um, at least. We don't always get there, but it, I, I plan way out to the end. And then I bring that back, figure out my major arcs, um, figure out what the first one's going to be, and then zoom back into the uh, into the first adventure. Um, of course, 
predictably. I do all of my uh, prep and all of my storage in City of Brass. Um, that's one of the reasons we created it. Um, it puts all of my stuff right in there. Um, and for me, really, it really is about knowing where I want to take the game at, in very broad strokes uh, so that I can plug in all of the, all of the things that happen as we go. Scott wants to just stop this now and play a game. So, sorry, Scott. Uh, we're not going to be able to do that. Uh, so, as for me, and this is some advice I've, I've given in the past, but I like to think big and create small. So, when I'm starting a new campaign, I have an overall idea of what's going on. You know, is the king evil? Is he be controlled by an evil force? Is there a witch in the woods who's stealing the children? You know, what plague is causing the wolves to come out and, and attack the farmers? Whatever. I have a, an idea of the big story that I, I want to tell, but I want to start with a scene. Like that's, that's the first thing I think of is, okay, where do my characters interact with this story? And that's what I try to create with either them already being together or how they come together. What's the first thing they're going to interact with? Who are all the NPCs that need to be there for that opening scene? And I try to create them as, as in as much detail as I can, what information they have, what information they're going to share, and then from that point on, I'm really sort of trying to improvise. I just sort of go, okay, well, they went left. I anticipated them going right. Based off of what I know and who all is involved and what their motivations are, how are they going to react to that? And then I basically just try to stay one step ahead of my players. Sometimes it works very well, and I have some, some examples where it's like, oh, that was great, and I've had other times where I've totally screwed it up, and I've had to sort of, you know, force them back onto my track and not proud of it, but it happens. Uh, but overall, I think for me, that's the, the technique that works best. And that goes back to even earlier question is I have an idea of what the motivations are for the plot, for the story, for the people they're interacting with. So when they go and go talk to someone I didn't anticipate, I can kind of figure out like, well, I may not be able to like come up with a speech off the top of my head, like, you know, Braveheart style, um, emotional where everybody just falls to their knees and cries because of this great speech, but they're going to convey the correct information that will allow the characters to move forward. All right, so at this point, we'll kind of wrap this up with a final question. Uh, what is one piece of advice that we haven't already talked about? We will aim this towards newer players, or newer, we should say newer GMs. So what's one piece of advice that you would share with a newer GM to help get them on the track to being a successful GM? So I'll actually go right to left this time, skipping myself. So we'll start with Lucas. Uh, don't get too hung up on the rules. The, the rules are good. They help facilitate the game. But, but don't let them ruin the game for you, especially if you got 11 players. <laughs> Excellent. All right, uh, Jim. Uh, well, he kind of already stole my thunder, but I'll, I'll follow up with, with a specific tool that I use to do exactly what Lucas said, and that is the 60-second rule. And that is when you are live at a game table playing and a rules question comes up that you do not know the answer to. At my table, and it's established beforehand, there is 60 seconds to find the answer in the rule book. If we cannot find it in that time, I, as the GM, am going to make a homebrew rule. I am always going to do it in favor of the players. I'm always going to give them the advantage, and that rule is going to stick until we hit a break or an end of a game session where it can be properly researched. And that way, we are not breaking up our gameplay session with a huge, let's find this rule. It's We've got 60 seconds. If we can't find it, here's my decision. We go with that. All right, Devin, how about yourself, sir? Uh, the one thing I would recommend is that you ask yourself, what comes next? Uh, think about your favorite entertainment, your favorite media, whether it's books, uh, audiobooks, um, plays, movies, TV shows, whatever. If, if you're exposed to that media enough, then you have a feeling for what's going to come after a given scene. So in your while you're running the game, ask yourself at the end of a scene, what comes next? And that will help you modify the scenes that you already have planned out or create something whole cloth that's brand new that you didn't plan for to continue on with the story so that it feels natural, so that it feels like a continuation from what's come before. Alrighty, and Christopher? Um, my biggest piece of advice that we have yet to touch on is... Um, if your players are open to it, some people, some aren't, but if your players are open to it, 
throw the question back at the players. You know, they ask, you know, what do I see? You know, I open the, the, the tome made of human skin written in blood. What does it say? Or I'm going to look for the local armsmith. You know, what are they like? Ask them. Throw the question back at them. It's like, well, what kind of armsmith are you looking for? Or, you know, I don't know, what kind of crazy mind-bendy things do you think are in a book written in human blood on tanned human hide. You know, have your players be part of the world building because there's more of them than there are of you and if you tap that resource, you're, you're not going to run out of creative ideas as quickly and it also gives the players something besides their character that they can call their own and in my experience, it helps them to... Um, to have a sense of this is our story, this is our world, instead of, oh, you know, I play Phytor in as one of um, yeah, as one of Lucas eleven players. It's not not to pick on you, Lucas, but I'm just um, it gives your your players ownership over something besides their characters. And if you have the right type of players they will run with it. You know, start up a City of Brass account, get your players in, just put the bare bones in, and you will probably have at least one player who will go in there and just explode the wiki. Be like, okay, I'm adding this and this and this. And they love it. I'm, personally, I'm that kind of player. I love to throw things out and change, not really change things, but um, focus things more. So I want to be the GM who gives my players that opportunity. It's a cookbook. What, the what book was that? Bound in, uh, the book bound in human skin and written in blood is a cookbook. Yes, to serve humans. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the, the ogres have to know how to eat people properly, right? Yeah, you you squash them into jelly. The poisoned liver, yeah. All right, so Caleb, from last, last piece of advice from you, sir. Uh, I think what's most important on top of everything else we've discussed today is don't get so attached to your story that you can't be flexible with reacting to your players and incorporating what they have said. Um, And I know that's pretty much what Christopher was saying, but I think it has a little bit of a different tone. Um, Christopher was saying basically use shared narration. Get get everybody involved, get details, get facts, get some input from them and make it real. I'm saying whatever your story is, you are telling events, you have an NPC, you have a monster, you have a building, whatever you have, something is going to happen that you don't want to happen or didn't anticipate would happen, don't be afraid just to let it happen. Let me sum myself up. Let me do my own job. Don't be afraid to kill your darlings. Uh, Put them on the chopping block. That's really, really good advice. Yeah, I I would agree with that as well. Uh, For me, uh, probably a little bit outside the norm from what everyone else has said, but uh, as a podcaster, we now record our games and I... I edit them, so I listen to myself DMing constantly. And I have picked up on so many things that I do that I didn't realize that I had done. Or I can tell, oh, at this point, all the players were really engaged. And this point, you know, I had to repeat myself so clearly they were having side conversations. So my advice would be to record yourself. Even if you're not considering starting a podcast, just, you know, throw your iPad, your iPhone, any sort of way that you can record the game, and even if it's just for you to listen back to, you will pick up on things that you did not know that you were doing or maybe some things that you were doing well that, that you didn't realize you were doing well uh, and just kind of self-evaluate your performance. And I think it will have a profound effect on uh, your GM style. So Christopher, you said you had one more, so I guess I will allow it uh, before we'll sign off here. All right, yes, and... Um... Specifically, since this is a GM panel, I, I know I mentioned earlier um, Eureka 501 Adventure Plots from Engine Publishing, but I would just highly recommend 
all of their books. They have uh, a trilogy of GM books, um, a guide a book on uh, session prep, a guide on campaign management, a guide on running sessions. But they also have the adventure plots. They have uh, masks, 1,000 uh, memorable NPCs. And they have an improv book. So it's just it's great literature because there are a lot of things out there on how to become a better player. But Engine Publishing has such great stuff for um, for GMs to better themselves. And I constantly read different sections of the books. I'm like, okay, I know I'm not doing this right. How do I get better at it? I go back to read their book, and it gives me more things to um, to work on and improve my own gaming. All right, very, very cool. Uh, and then, so Caleb, you said you had a final thought as well. Yeah. Uh, okay, so we've spent, what, two and a half hours or so chatting about all this stuff. Six expert GMs, if I may be a little unmodest. Six very <laughs> different opinions. I'll allow it. Oh, thank you. Uh, six expert GMs, because Devin said I could say it. Um <laughs> We all have very different opinions. We all have very different styles. Uh, we all have conflicting opinions, I, I think. It's very safe to say. But we just had a very awesome two-and-a-half, three-hour conversation. We all walked away from this with sharing ideas, enjoying each other's company. Uh, I think whether or not we agree with each other, we are all going to take what we said to heart and maybe adapt, maybe learn, maybe evolve, maybe not, who cares? But we had a hell of a good time. We talked about a lot of really awesome things. And the end of the day, that's what gaming is all about. As, as Jim says, uh, role-playing games are the highest form of, of storytelling and art that uh, humans can produce. I think <laughs> it's also important to say, and I know I butchered that quote, but I don't care, uh, I, I think it's also important to be able to walk away from a conversation and say, you know what, we learned, we had a lot of fun, and we spent a lot of great time together. Being able to talk about the hobby, something we're all passionate about, that's what I love the most about doing podcasts and having this network and spending these hours with all you gentlemen. Being able to share what we love, who cares what the end result is, that is a, a truly great evening. So whether or not you take any advice from anything we just rambled on about, enjoy what you're doing. Because if you're having fun, you're doing it right. There, there you it go, is. Lucas. Could not have said that better myself. Uh, so if, <laughs> if Jim is correct that uh, tabletop RPGs is the highest form of art, then that means that uh, the, all the rules of art apply, and that means that art is created for the artist. They are, it is coming from themselves, so that's all you really need to be true is to yourself, and hopefully you will find an audience that will enjoy it. Uh, before we completely go, I'll have everybody give a chance to say their name again and kind of where people can find them as a wrap-up. Uh, but for me, I just want to thank all of you for joining me tonight for our first ever RPG Academy Network event. This is something I do hope that we can do in the future. If, if anyone kind of found us accidentally or through a link that was shared and you're not aware, uh, the RPG Academy Network is a sort of a loose affiliation of various podcasts, blog sites, um, and other websites, including City of Brass and GamersPlane.com, where we kind of have a shared vision of the love of the hobby, and we want to spread it as much as we can. Uh, we are always looking for other shows and sites to join our network if they kind of fulfill our idea of what they, uh, they sort of share the same love that we do for expanding the hobby. Uh, so I want to thank all of my panelists for, for joining me tonight. They are all part of the RPG Academy network in one way or the other. So if you like anything that we talked about here, please go find them on their various uh, websites and blogs and podcasts because I'm sure you will enjoy that. And then check out the others that are on the network as well. Uh, so we'll go left to right. Just kind of give us your name and where people can find you as a close. So Caleb? Uh, the best way to get a hold of me is Twitter, at the Caleb G. Thank you, sir. Christopher? Um, Twitter is a great place to find me, too, at EldritchFire. But I am more active on Google+. Plus. If you want to um, find me there, I am Christopher Ruthenbeck. 
Otherwise, you can um, find links to me on the Sharkbone podcast website, I think. All right, and Devin. Uh, find me on Twitter as well, shark underscore bone. Uh, and, of course, I encourage you to uh, go check out the show at sharkbonepodcast.com. Bone. Yeah, we love our shark boners. Boners. I said we were going to talk about boners. We did. Yay! <laughs> and Devin is the chief shark boner. Just remember. We were so yes. close to getting through this. But no. I'm happy now. <laughs> Man, I was happy before. I'm, I'm ecstatic right now. This is a good night. All right. Boner's Jim. always happy. <laughs> no, you can have a sad boner. Ugh. You can't have a sad boner. Bonheur is actually French, bonheur, meaning good hour. So oh, my God, you just killed it. Jeez. I can't ah. edit this, people. Stop. <laughs> <laughs> Jim, please. Well, I, I, I don't know if I can, I, I can uh, uh, live up to the great boner conversation, but I'm going to try. <laughs> the... Uh... I have got I'm done. Good lord. Okay. Uh, I, of course, I'm I'm Jim McClure. Uh, TalkingTabletop.net is my website and our podcast, where you can find wherever uh, you know podcasts are found in this day and age. Uh, I encourage you to go check it out. Um, we, again, I do interview shows and Hero's Journey, where we chronicle the adventures as Emily runs her very first campaign ever. Um, you can find me, interact with me. The best way is either via email, jim at uh, talkingtabletop.net, or I am very active on Twitter, which is at GM Jim McClure. Thank you, sir. And Lucas? Boner. <laughs> <laughs> you, can, uh, you can find me on Twitter at embersds, or better yet, go sign up for your free City of Brass trial account and get me on our symposium uh, message board there. All right, fantastic. And as for myself, I am Michael, also known as Professor Fluff. I'm the other co-host of the RPG Academy podcast. The easiest way to get a hold of me is Twitter as well, and that is at the RPG Academy. And uh, again, this thank you for joining us live if you were here. Thank you for everyone who might listen to this as a podcast or on YouTube. We do hope to do more of these in the future, so if you have suggestions for future topics, please let us know. Uh, I think the next one we're going to do is going to be uh, aimed more for a player side, because uh, that's something that we don't do a lot of in our all our various podcasts. I don't know that we cover as much of how to be a good player, so I thought that would be fun. Uh, so look for that in a few weeks to months, as soon as we can organize it. So once again, Caleb, Christopher, Devin, Jim, and Lucas, thank you so much for joining me, and we will see you soon. Thank you.